You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So if you have a Bible this morning, take that out. If it's your phone or your tablet, turn that on and go to Philippians chapter two as we continue on in our study of this amazing letter. And as you're finding your way there, I, uh, I'm reminded of a conversation I had earlier this, this week with a college buddy of mine. Um, he was my roommate in college, really close friend. Uh, he still lives on the west side. He didn't follow me out here when I moved to the east side, but I don't hold that against him. We still talk. And when we catch up together, he always, he just makes me laugh. He just tells me the greatest stories, especially about his kids. And he told me this story this week about one of his, one of his kids. Then I thought, oh boy, that fits where we're going. But they were riding in their van. They were headed somewhere. My, my friend was driving. His, one of his daughters was sitting in the back and she happened to be reading her Bible. And she said, Dad, how come God is against gluten? And he said, what? And she said, how come God is against gluten? And he said, what do you mean? She said, it's right here in the Bible. She was reading out of Proverbs. And he said, well, read me the verse. And she said, nor should you be a gluten or a drunkard. (laughs) And he said, honey, it's not gluten, it's glutton. Oh, what's that mean? And so they began to talk about that. But there's also another proverb that says, from right thinking comes right living. See, the issue isn't if you have a theology about God. All of us do. Even people who don't worship Jesus, worship God, the one true God, have a theology of God. The real question is, is your theology of God a biblical one? Because what we understand about God, what we believe about God, impacts our daily lives. It matters how we live our lives. And biblical theology is always practical, always relevant, always something that impacts your daily life. And in this passage we're going to look at this morning in Philippians, there is some heavy lifting that we're going to be doing theologically. This is considered to be one of the most foundational theological passages in all of Philippians. In fact, it is the most discussed, the most debated, the most wrestled with passage in this entire letter that we're going to look at. In fact, there are some scholars who assert that this is one of the most studied and wrestled with passages about what we understand about God and especially about Jesus in the entire New Testament. I mean, this is loaded. It's dense, it's deep, it's thick, it's significant, and yet it is profoundly practical. This is not pie-in-the-sky esoteric stuff. This is incredibly relevant and meaningful for how you and I live out our daily lives and our relationships. And this builds on really this whole section that we've been looking at here at the end of chapter one and, in the, and going into chapter two. If you missed last week, we talked about this whole reality that we are called as God's people to live in unity together. And that's one of the mysteries of the gospel is how God can take such an incredibly diverse, different group of people, different generations, different levels of education, different ethnicities, different walks and stations of life, and bring us all together and we can be one and we can live in unity in community with one another it's one of the ways 
that the gospel is distinct. And the basis of that unity is this value, this reality of humility. And so we looked at in the verses that precede what we're studying today, the basis of unity, the command for unity, the practice of unity all comes down to Jesus. And now Paul is going to unpack what he means when he calls us to unity and calls us to a life of humility through that. And so now we come to Philippians chapter two. So I'd like to read this to you once again. Aaron did a wonderful job of unpacking some of this for us, but let's look at this one more time. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as, man, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Let's begin to walk our way through that and then we'll look at how that really does apply to our lives as we do so. We are told in our relationships with one another to have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Another way this could be said is we are to think the way Jesus did. Another way we could say this is we are to have the same disposition as Jesus. This is saying that Jesus is our example, and it absolutely is, but it's saying more than that. What does it really mean to have the same mindset, the same disposition of Jesus? How does that work? This is one of those defining distinctives of the gospel of Jesus Christ that separates it from every other worldview, every other religion in the entire world, and this is it. Jesus isn't just our example. He is our empowerment, meaning that Christianity is the only worldview, the only belief system that teaches that God himself comes and lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. The goal is not necessarily a code or a creed or um, uh, looking to him as just an example. He literally comes and lives in your life and he makes you into a new person from the inside out. The reason Paul can say have the same mindset of Jesus is because if you've received Jesus into your life, if you've made that defining moment decision to enter into right relationship with him, then he lives inside of you. And yes, you do have access to his disposition. You really can think like he did. And this is one of the reasons why. Jesus, who being in very nature God, that is an incredibly profound statement. In other versions, translations like the English Standard Version, for example, it will say who in being, who being in the form of God, and in the form is also a fair translation of this and a good one, but it can kind of be a little confusing because it sounds like, well, he, he kind of looked like God. No, this is literally saying Jesus is the exact essence of God, and this is absolutely a non-negotiable. This is A-level, die-for theology and understanding about God. 
Jesus is God. This is where we part ways with our Mormon friends, our Jehovah Witness friends, and a number of belief systems out there that teach that Jesus was a God, a God, or, or Jesus was somewhat divine. No, Jesus is God. We will never compromise on that because scripture never does. That is taught Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is God and that absolutely matters. He's not just a good teacher or a wise sage or an example or a good man. He is God. And look what this says about God. He did not consider equality with God the Father something to be used to his own advantage. Another way of saying this is he didn't exploit this for his own gain. He didn't use this to his own advantage. Another way to say this is equality with God the Father wasn't something to be held onto, something to be grasped. And this comparison between Jesus And Adam, which many scholars believe is being referenced here, happens repeatedly in scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, in Adam, all die. And in Christ, all are made alive. Jesus is referred to as the second Adam because the first Adam, and here's where this comes from, in Genesis 3, he grasped for equality with God because he wanted to exploit it and use it to his own selfish advantage. That's why God told him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this has that imagery in Genesis 3 of grasping for something and using it for your own gain. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't grasp the equality with God. He, he gave it up. How does that work? The passage goes on to tell us he made himself nothing. And again, in other translations that will translate this as he emptied himself. Oh, so he stopped being God, right? Well, wait a minute. Isn't the whole basis of this passage telling us that Jesus is God? That cannot be in any way, shape, or form what that means. So what does that mean? And there's legitimate wrestling that goes on with this, but really, as you look at the scope of Scripture, you look at this in context, what this this means is that he laid aside his glory. As the Gospel of John 17 talks about, he gave up his divine privileges and prerogatives. Another way to say this is he veiled his deity, but he didn't void it. And another way to say this is how one of my favorite theologians, Gary Brashears, describes it, is that he gave up his all-access God card. Many years ago, my Jamie and I celebrated our 20th anniversary, and we got to go to Hawaii for the first time. And I've told you that story about how we almost didn't make it there, and for those of you who have missed that, I'll retell that story in another five or 10 years. But we almost didn't make it there, so we got to our hotel late that night, really late. You remember that, Jame? And as we checked in, They had given our room away because we'd gotten there so late and the hotel was full. And it was a really nice hotel. And we thought, oh, we were so disappointed. And so we're, but we're talking with the the lady at the front desk and she said, it's your 20th anniversary? Yeah. Have you ever been to Hawaii? No. She said, okay, this is not okay. We're gonna fix this. So she picks up the phone. I don't know who she called, but she calls someone right in front of Jamie and I and says, okay, here's the deal. Give me something good. And what can you do for me? She asks. And like the voice, whatever, said, 
said to her, we can do this. And so she got this huge smile on her face and she said, we've got you taken care of. And she handed us these cards. And they were cards to the top floor of this high-rise hotel to the penthouse. She gave us one of the penthouse suites. And so we got in the elevator and people were punching the floors, you know, the buttons to go to the floors and it came to us being the last ones in the elevator and we hit the top floor button and it didn't work because it took the all-access card in order to get there. So we put the all-access card into the slot and then hit the button, took us to the top floor. It was epic. (laughs) If I sold my house and sold off my kids, we probably still couldn't afford a night in this room. I mean, it was, I've never seen it. It was absolutely amazing. And on this floor, there was a 24-hour chef-prepared meal for you at any point. You could go into this room and and there was a chef there making just all sorts of chef-type food. And... (laughs) I gained five pounds unapologetically on our anniversary. It was, it was wonderful. But the only way into that room was that all-access card. And at the end of our stay at the hotel, I had to give that card back. And I wept openly <laughs> as, I, as I handed it back. Jesus voluntarily gave up his all-access God card to humble himself. And I don't think we'll ever truly be able to grasp the enormity of that or what that tangibly meant to give up his glory, to give up and lay aside the incredible intimacy he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit in order to become human. And that's what he did. It says he took the nature of a servant Another way to translate this, and I think an even more distinct and specific way, is he became a slave. A slave has no rights, no property, no status, no standing. They really have no life apart from the will of the master. And it says that he was made in human likeness, which again, this can be misunderstood, but it's the same phrase that's describing that he was in very nature God, it's saying he was really in very nature a human being. It says human likeness because he looked like a human because he really was. I mean, do we grasp the significance of that? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once, yet Jesus was in one place at one time as a human being. God is all-powerful, yet Jesus voluntarily limited his power. I mean, think about this with me. Jesus set aside being all-knowing to being finite in his knowledge. It tells us in the Gospel of Luke that he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature. He, he grew up. He learned. He, he developed the way any kid would into an adult. When, by way of example, Jesus was going to heal the man's daughter, and he says, how, how long has she been like this? Or rather, he asked that question, and he gets told, you know, the answer. What does it really mean in the original language when it says, how long has she been like this? 
It means, how long has she been like this? He really didn't know. When his disciples in Matthew 24 said, Jesus, tell us, when are you gonna come back? When are all these things gonna happen that you're talking about? And he said, I don't know. Only the Father does. And in the original language, what that means is, I don't know. Only the Father does. What's really fundamental, foundational, important, non-negotiable that we understand here is that Jesus was not 99% God and 1% human. He wasn't like Superman where he'd go around the corner. He really was God, but he was in disguise. He just needed to find a phone booth and change into his, you know, and then he's, no, we have to understand, we have to appreciate, we have to realize Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, which is absolutely remarkable. As Augustine, the great church father, said, Christ added to himself, which he was not. He did not lose what he was. And if that wasn't enough for him to become like us, look at the extent that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I don't know that we can fully grasp the significance of that last line there, even death on a cross. Because Jesus lived in an honor-shame society, which for most of us is completely alien. We can read about it, we can learn about it, but we can't truly understand it unless we live in it. Parts of Asia, parts of Africa, and the Middle East are all honor-shame societies to this day. And literally, what keeps you up at night What causes great anxiety and concern for you is to bring shame on yourself and your family. It is literally a fate worse than death for you to shame yourself or to shame your family. Honor is absolutely everything. So here we go. Dying by crucifixion was, if not the most, one of the most profoundly shameful and humiliating things that could ever happen to someone. The Romans who perfected crucifixion, it existed before them, but they perfected it, would not crucify their own citizens because it was so profoundly degrading and humiliating and horrible. And when they would crucify a female criminal, by example, they would turn her around to give her some semblance of honor. They would crucify her backwards because when you were crucified, You were stripped naked, profoundly shamed publicly by everyone in front of you and around you. You lost control of your body and your bowels, and we'll stop there, but you're now getting the idea that if it wasn't one of the most prolonged, painful, terrifying, horrible, excruciating ways to die, It was also one of the most shameful, humiliating, degrading ways to die. And Jesus willingly died like that. The ultimate example of humility. How far was Jesus willing to go to humble himself? To the point of absolute humiliation. Why? Why would he do that? 
Well, the passage tells us in part, for starters, for the glory of God, to glory the Father. In partnership with the Father, to put into motion the plan of of salvation. To break the power of sin and death. Really, at the end of the day, Jesus was shamed in this way so that you and I never will have to be. If you know Jesus, if you have received him into your life, you will never be shamed before the Father. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Unlike empty religion, Christianity is not about your resume. It is not about what you do. It is about how you respond or reject what has been done for you by Jesus at the cross and through his resurrection. Jesus did not grasp and hold on to what he had. He gave it up. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel changes you from being a getter and a grasper to a giver. Jesus is the ultimate expression of humility. And really the ultimate expression of humility is serving. Not using people to your own advantage like our culture promotes and teaches and applauds but serving others instead, which is where this gets profoundly practical for our relationships. How far are you willing to go to serve the people in your life? Where is that line for you for how you will humble yourself? in order to benefit someone else. Because what we have to appreciate, which is so far removed from what most of us will ever experience, is that this was written to a group of Jesus followers like us, who unlike us, less than a generation later, would lose their lives in order to serve Jesus. They were willing to die in order to serve their God and in order to serve others. You and I will probably never be called to that. But where is that line for you in your relationships? Because if you play this out, if you live this out, then it will challenge and change your relationships, how you use your time, how you invest your resources, the comfort that we are all inclined to gravitate towards. One of the greatest battlegrounds for humility in my own life, I'm realizing, is my comfort. Because I'm taught and told and influenced in so many ways by this broken world around me that life is about me. Life is about my comfort, my terms, what I want. And what Christ is calling to, what Christ is calling us to with his example and what he, what he empowers us to live is so distinctly different from that. I mean, it was on display this week. Many of you 
live this out. You serve others. Do you know why we sent out that email this week, the all-church email about what was going on with the wildfires? It's because of you. Because a number of you began to call us and to say, we have a room. We have a loft. I mean, if it really gets down to it, we have a garage. We will take someone in from our church family who's been displaced. And so to keep up with that, we built this database and began to try to prepare ourselves to match people up because there were a number of you who kept calling saying, we have a room, we have a room. That's being willing to serve others. But, but this has profound implications. And let's, let's just talk about this for starters in the context of doing life together as a church, because that's really what this is talking about. This was written to a church to be lived out in the church and then to be lived out in the community. So let's start with the church. It impacts our time. Do you know what it takes to pull off what we do on a Sunday morning here? I mean, really, in terms of time and people? I began to count. And given the Sunday, with the four worship services we do here and all that comes along with that, it takes 50 to 75 people every Sunday morning to, to pull off this time of, of corporate worship. When you start thinking about our production team here that pulls off the worship services, the worship team, the security team, the cafe team, the children's ministry team, the student ministry team. Uh, you know, I could go on and on and on. I'm, I'm leaving others out, I know. But those are all people who choose to serve and to give their time. Next week, we're gonna be doing a ministry fair. We're out in the lobby. We'll have all these tables representing a majority, and probably not all of them. We're not trying to overlook anyone, but a majority of the ministries that we have with inside the walls of this place. And I wanna appeal to you and encourage you to not just walk by those next week, but to take those in for starters and to look at how many of you are serving and investing in each other's lives and yes, there are seasons when you go through stations, you know, stages of life or stuff that's going on in your life where you're not able to, to serve, and that's okay, but at some point, you need to be involved in investing yourself in the lives of others in this church family. Nobody gets a pass on this because you are stunting and hindering your own growth in Christ, and we are missing out on the gifts that God's given to you to use for the benefit and blessing of others. So will you serve with your time? How about your resources? You are so profoundly generous. I say this to you often because I genuinely believe it. I do not personally know of a more generous body of Jesus followers than you. You are profoundly generous. In the 12 years that I've been able to call this church home, without exception, except in 2008 when we were just hanging on for economic survival like the rest of our country, the other 11 years we have increased our budget unapologetically every year in order to serve more people in this community in the name of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel. I think that's pretty cool. And every year you give and we're somehow able to grow our budget and resources to accomplish the mission that we believe God has called us to. That's from you serving. We're almost halfway there with Grace Unleashed to being able to pay off at least half of our mortgage when it comes due here this, this next year. And all those resources are gonna be able to be repurposed for even more ministry. That's huge, that doesn't just happen. But let's take this a little deeper. Since this is about relationships, let's really, really go there. Where is the line for you? 
in humbling yourself to serve the people God has put you in your life? You willing to be misunderstood? You willing to have your reputation called into question? You willing to be wronged even when you're right? Oh boy, here's a tough one. You ready? Will you apologize and seek forgiveness when the other person doesn't deserve it? Will you apologize and seek forgiveness when the other person legitimately owes you an apology, but will you be the first one? Will you humble yourself the way Jesus has humbled himself for you? Because Paul saves the best for last, and so have we. Why should we live like this? Why did Jesus live like this in part? Well, look at this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God always, always, always rewards trust and obedience. Scripture teaches that explicitly. Jesus himself taught that explicitly. That's what we see happening here. How did the Father respond to Jesus' trust and obedience? He rewarded him. And man, how he rewarded him. This passage we've looked at just for the lack of time, we haven't been able to show and illustrate all the Old Testament references that are being made here, but this is one I just don't feel like we can pass on. There is a reference being made here very directly to Isaiah chapter 25. Paul basically takes Jesus' name and he inserts it into Isaiah 25. Look at the significance of this. This is God the Father saying this. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will what? Every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. That word for the Lord is the divine name for God the Father. It is Yahweh. And this is the same name that the Father gives to Jesus. is his own name and his own glory. It's unbelievable. And look at what's gonna happen when this takes place. When Jesus comes back and we see this fully played out, it's gonna be worship. Unbelievable worship. Worldwide worship. Where were you when the eclipse happened? Some of you, you know, were watching TV or you didn't care, right? You're on your phone. But for those of you who took that in, where were you? We chose to go to Ever, uh, Evergreen Aviation Museum with about 10,000 other people, evidently. <laughs> But it was really cool. Uh, here's all these people. Kids are running around. There's picnics. It's just, it felt like a huge party. And, and we're watching from the parking lot there. And, and just as the total eclipse happened, I, I couldn't believe this. I mean, it, it so amazed me. I just, I took off my glasses and I looked around. 
spontaneous applause. Every single person, kid, young adult, adult, all over, thousands of people applauding. What were they doing? They were worshiping. They may not have known who they were worshiping, but they were worshiping. And then when the eclipse began to reverse itself and the light came out again, you know what happened? Every single person. Oh, did you not think that was going to happen? Do you think it was going to st stay stuck, you know? <laughs> but I looked around, and here's everyone again. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of worship, and it's a picture of what is going to happen when Jesus comes back. Every knee will bow, and everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a promise, and this is a reality, and it's going to happen. The real question will be, will you bow your knee? Will you proclaim him as Lord because you know him and love him? Or because you will involuntarily do so because you don't have a choice? Because this is what's gonna happen. And this is what we choose to do here this morning as his bride and his body. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.